Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We'll be looking at a passage there. We want you to have a Bible in front of you, if at all possible. So these guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. And if you need one, just get their attention. And they'll hand you a copy of God's Word that is marked for you at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. It's been said that familiarity breeds contempt, meaning that long-term close relationships tend to deteriorate. Thankfully, there are many in this room who've been married for many years, some of us for decades, who can testify that it doesn't have to be that way. But though familiarity does not, in fact, always or perhaps even most of the time breed contempt, Familiar relationships and circumstances do often breed routine. And what is routine can easily be taken for granted as we just go through the motions. I remember while I was in high school being very anxious to graduate because I became tired of the routine. Now, overall, I had a a great time in high school, but still doing the same thing day after day for years can result in a sort of monotony that creates a desire for change. Now, some situations, like high school, are imposed, and they just have to be dealt with until they're completed. But even those that we choose can lose their excitement and their enjoyment if we forget why we're doing them, if they become merely routine. Almost all of you are here because you've chosen to be, unless someone made you come. If that's the case, I'm sorry. But even so, even though we've chosen to come, church can become just another thing on our schedule. One among many things that we do, but not necessarily more important than any other. And Perhaps it's been a long time since we thought about why we come. And what it is we're supposed to be striving to accomplish together. And that's why each year we have what we call our servants seminar. In the seminar, we take time to remind ourselves of the objectives that the Lord has given his church. And we talk about ways that we can seek to achieve them. We had our latest servants seminar in November. And as is indicated in this morning's program, It's being offered again next Sunday for those who were unable to attend last time. So I make that by way of announcement next Sunday evening. If you were not able to attend the seminar in November, then I encourage you to do that. We need a good idea of who all is coming because we offer a light dinner. So having a number will help us plan for the food. If you're on our email list, then you received a note this past Friday with a button in it that you just click to RSVP. Or before you leave today, you can register, stop at the information center desk, and let them know that you'll be attending. Now, that November meeting was pretty well attended, but our goal is to have at least one representative from each family attend one or the other of those meetings. And what we do in those seminars is what is said in the program today about what we'll do next week. We detail the milestones and the ministries that we're going to set and strengthen in order to reach the goal of this year's theme, which is presenting everyone fully mature in Christ. So we offer that every year. 
We have it again next week. If you didn't come in November, I encourage you to be here next week and let us know that you are coming. But in addition to offering that servant seminar each year, I also take the first Sunday of the new year to remind us of why we do what we do, what our objectives are, and then call each of us to commit and recommit to the mission that the Lord has given to us. So today we're going to consider the marks of a healthy church. Now, as last week for Christmas, this is a a topical message. We'll begin in Acts chapter 2, but we'll survey several other passages as well. Then we'll return next Sunday morning at 9.30 for our worship service, studying the book of Philippians. I've asked you to turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They've devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily, those who were being saved. Let's ask God to help us as we look at his word. Our Father, we thank you for gathering your people on this Lord's Day and this New Year's Day. Lord, we believe that you are the God who controls all events in your world. You are the God who has given time, and you are the God who gives us our time on earth. And Lord, we were reminded in our prayer this morning that That time is indeed short, particularly when compared to eternity. And so we want to be reminded anew of what you have charged your people to accomplish in their sojourn on earth. And so we ask you, Lord, to help us to have attentive minds and open hearts as we look at what you tell us about what your church and your people are to be. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And we have an outline for you every week of our message, and it's on the back of your program. I invite you to take a look there. We're going to see three major objectives that the church has. The first is this. If a church is healthy, healthy churches evangelize. Healthy churches evangelize. There are a number of related terms that we hear and use. Related terms to that one, evangelize. Terms like evangelism, evangelist, evangelical. What those English words all have in common is that they derive from the same Greek term. You'll recall that your New Testament was originally written in Greek. That Greek term is euangelion. That's a combination of the word angel, from which we get our English angel, or a messenger. And then in English, a, a euphemism is that that prefix euangelion, that prefix you means glad or good or happy. And in English, a euphemism is saying something in a good way that might otherwise sound bad. Or a eulogy at a funeral is to say good words about the deceased. So if you put that together, euangelion means good message or good news. It's translated in the New Testament as gospel. The gospel is the euangelion. The gospel is the good news, the good message that's centered on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
An evangelical, then, is one who believes that good news of the gospel. Evangelism is the activity of giving the gospel. An evangelist is one who who does that. And so healthy churches evangelize. That is, healthy churches give the gospel. They prioritize the gospel. Now, the key components of the gospel are given succinctly in 1 Corinthians 15, in this well-known passage that says, I want to remind you of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, in Acts chapter 2, just before the passage we read from that chapter, it tells us that Peter preached the gospel. In fact, if you look back at verse 22, of Acts chapter 2. Peter stands before a group on the day of Pentecost, the founding, the beginning of the church, and the beginning of the mission that Christ has given the church. And in verse 22, he says to the crowd there, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Verse 32, if you look down at verse 32, says, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. And then Peter concludes his message to that group in verse 36 by saying, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So he's giving them the gospel. He's telling them about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he's the the Messiah who has come to die for the sins of his people, but he is raised and he is now Lord and Messiah. Christ, Lord and Messiah. And upon hearing this, verse 36, excuse me, verse 37 says this, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, in that response, Peter was using terms that Jesus had used just days earlier when Jesus gave his first followers, the apostles, what we call the Great Commission. After Jesus had completed his earthly ministry, he had died on the cross for sin, he had raised from the dead, he told his first followers what they were to do, and then he ascended back to the Father. And this is what Jesus said in those last words to the apostles. Go and make disciples of all nations. And notice the word baptizing there. It's the word that Peter uses in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. What shall we do? You're to be baptized. What is Peter doing? He's doing what Jesus said. He's carrying out the Great Commission. He's proclaiming the message. That message includes being baptized. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Now, that's the most well-known statement in the New Testament of the Great Commission, but it's not the only statement of the Great Commission. You know that we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
Each of them tell us about the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus when he was on the earth. And Luke also, at the end of his gospel, at the end of the book of Luke, gives us the Great Commission, Jesus' final words to his first followers. But he gives some additional information from that of of Matthew. And here's what the end of the book of Luke says. Jesus is giving these instructions after he's died, after he's risen. He's ready to ascend back to the Father. And he says this, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So healthy churches, like that of this first church in Jerusalem described in Acts chapter 2, they evangelize. That's what Peter was doing. And that's what Jesus said to do when he gave the Great Commission. You see those words, repentance and forgiveness of sins. Again, the same words that Peter used in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. So as healthy churches evangelize then, how do they do it? Well, there are two ways. I say in your outline. They give the gospel, first of all, personally. Healthy churches evangelize and they give the gospel personally. Now, we are in the book of Acts, and the formal title of this book is not just the book of Acts, but it's the book of the Acts of the Apostles. It's the Acts of the Apostles, and that's because most of what you will read in the book of Acts is focused on what they did. You notice in the passage that you have opened in front of you, it's the apostles who, according to verse 43, performed wonders and signs that the people saw. Now, since there are no more apostles today, they all died in the first, by the end of the first century. That's why we don't see those things happening today. And the guys on TV who claim to do them are faking it. Have I been clear? But although the book of Acts is mostly about what the apostles did, there are, of course, things that non-apostles like you and me did and are continue to do. One of those is to give the gospel. As you go further into reading in the book of Acts, you have the story of this first church in Jerusalem, how it continued to grow, some of the things that they they did together, some of the issues that they faced. But then when you get to Acts chapter 8, it says a persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And as a result of that persecution, they were scattered. They left Jerusalem. They moved out to the regions beyond. A great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, says Acts 8.1, and all except the apostles were scattered. The apostles stay in Jerusalem. Many of the people scatter. And it says that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Do you see that? So it was not just the apostles who did this. It was not just like Peter in Acts chapter 2. But rather the regular folk at the church in Jerusalem who are now scattered, but as they go, they're giving the, they're giving the gospel. Likewise in Acts chapter 11. It says, among those who had been scattered by the persecution, they spread the word both among Jews and Gentiles. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Healthy churches Evangelize. Healthy churches give the gospel. And everybody gives the gospel. So if we are going to continue to be a healthy church, it means that we will have to continue to evangelize. We, each of us, 
We'll need to continue to do that in our spheres of, of influence to those that God brings into our circle of relationship. Our next three Discovering God series. Now, Discovering God is our second hour on Sundays. Next week, 9.30, worship. 11 o'clock is our educational hour. The adult portion of that is called Discovering God. And of our next three Discovering God series, it's going to include one to train, yet remind us again of this issue of personal evangelism. So let me just remind you of what our, our schedule is then coming up. Starting next Sunday, we have four weeks during that 11 o'clock hour of our newcomers orientation and our members orientation. So next week at 11, I encourage you all to be here and you'll be in one of two classes as adults. You'll either be in the members orientation for four weeks in January. That's everybody in our church. You may have been through our new members orientation some time ago, but we've revamped that a bit. And so we want everybody to go through it together with the new, the new material. Larry will be leading that in this room during the 11 o'clock hour starting next week. That same time for those four weeks, I will be leading our newcomers orientation. And for those four weeks, we go through a notebook of material to give you information about our church, where we've come from, what we believe, what we hope to accomplish in the future. So if you're new to our church, if you've never taken our newcomers orientation, that will inform you about who we are fairly thoroughly so that you can then make a decision as to whether or not this is the place that God would have you. I encourage you to be here next week at 11 o'clock. We'll be in a classroom together. I'll give you a notebook of material and we'll do that for four Sundays together. And then on February 5th, during that hour, we'll all be together. I'll start a series called How to Be Good and Angry. On what the Bible teaches about anger. But through that, like all of those Discovering God series, we seek to give the gospel through it. And so we're going to give you invitations, like we always do, to give to your friends, to invite them to, to come to that. After Easter, in late April, I'll be doing a series on how to overcome worry. And then in the summer, a series called Evangelism for the faint-hearted. All of those during that second hour, the 11 o'clock hour. So this summer, we'll be looking at some teaching together on personal evangelism. Why? Because healthy churches evangelize. They give the gospel personally, and so we need to be reminded and trained to do that. I say in your outline as well, these healthy churches give the gospel congregationally. Give the gospel personally, but we also give it congregationally. That is, in addition to giving the gospel as individuals, together we pool our resources to give the gospel. Now, in the New Testament, you won't find a lot about this collective activity, in part because you may remember that they did not have buildings to meet in like this one. We call this building our our ministry center. They didn't have ministry centers where they could have classes like I described a bit ago that we do during our Discovering God Hour. But nevertheless, even when churches were primarily confined to meeting in homes, as was the case in the first century, collective and public evangelism would take place. We're told of one such instance in Acts chapter 19, where Paul is in the city of Ephesus. The Bible tells us he spent three years there. He established a church. He nurtured that church. He established leadership there. But he and they also engaged in collective congregational evangelism While he was there as well. The Bible says this. Paul and the Christians with him in Ephesus. Had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And then it says this went on for two years. 
so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. They did this together. They got a place, apparently rented a place from someone named Tyrannus. And they gathered people similar to what we do for discovering God. To say, this is what God says. This is who Jesus is. This is who you are. This is how sin affects you. And this is the solution to that sin in the Lord Jesus. This lecture hall then refers to a place owned by someone named Tyrannus. That name comes from, it's actually Tyrant. So either his parents were prophetic about his character. (laughs) And so he named him Tyrant. Or more likely, those who knew him or rented from him called him that. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says, As for the rent for the hall, perhaps Priscilla and Aquila, you'll remember them as associates of the great apostle in his work of disseminating the gospel. Perhaps they shared in supplying for the rent for that or the growing congregation in Ephesus underwrote it. But either way, it was a collective activity that they did congregationally in order To get the gospel out in Ephesus. Now in a day when we have facilities. And we can use them on a regular basis. Then we can have events like discovering God every week. But also outreach events. Like the Living Last Supper. We're going to be doing that again this year. It's on our schedule for April 1 and 2. A Saturday night and a Sunday night. And we'll be. uh, You'll have to have tickets. They're free. But you'll have to have tickets for space considerations. But for that, be thinking about someone or someones that you can invite to that as an evangelistic outreach that we will do congregationally. We're looking to start something called Upward Soccer this spring. And that's a soccer league for kids, but it's a Christian soccer league. We have a soccer field here, so we're going to make use of it through Upward Soccer. And then at the end of the season, they have a banquet, the gospel is given, and so on. And so, friends, ideally, a church has a partnership between the individual efforts of its members and the collective outreach it does as a congregation. And practically speaking, if you don't have the one, you will not have the other. If you don't have people engaged in personal witness, then you won't have them inviting folks to the events that you have as a church. And if you don't emphasize evangelism collectively, congregationally, then the motivation for individuals to witness can easily wane. You need to have both of those to be a healthy church. Healthy churches evangelize. I say secondly in your outline. Healthy churches edify. Healthy churches edify. Now, edification is one of those churchy words. I mean, that's about the only time you would say edification is when you're in church. So it's a churchy word that we use, and we probably don't know what it means. Edify uh, is related to an edifice. An edifice is a building. And so to edify is to build up. And as applied to the Christian life, it means to build up in the faith, to grow in the Lord. So healthy churches evangelize, they give the gospel, but then those who are reached with the gospel are to grow in the gospel. They're to be built up. Healthy churches provide the means to do that. I have three of those listed for you in your program. These churches that edify engage in worship. Worship. Acts 2.42 says the first church in Jerusalem observed the, quote, breaking of bread, and they engaged in collective prayer. 
both activities of formal worship, even if done in an informal setting. Now, in saying that, I'm taking the phrase breaking of bread to refer to the observance of the Lord's table, although it could mean just a common meal. As a matter of fact, common meals together are referred to in verse 46. But since this mention of breaking of bread in verse 42 is between the spiritual activities of fellowship and prayer, I, along with many others, take that it's referring to the practice of observing communion. Or, to put it another way, it's a congregational act of worship. Now, that healthy churches engage in worship is scarcely in dispute. 1 Timothy chapter 2 gives instructions on public worship for the church, and its components are mentioned in several places in Scripture. If you were to look at the New Testament as a whole, and you look at those passages that refer to what's done when God's people gather together, you would construct a list of items that occur. Items like preaching, musical praise, giving, prayer, fellowship. All of those are to be included. And by the way, that what I just listed there all comes from the New Testament. And doesn't it sound very much like what we do together on the Lord's Day? You see, when we do the public reading of Scripture, when we pray when we give, when we preach. We're not just doing that because we've always done that. We're doing that because that's what the New Testament says God's people do when they come together for worship. So the big issue is not, should we worship, but how? And as you know, there are a wide variety of ways that churches have chosen to worship God in our day. Many of them designed to appeal to the world in order to reach the world. So Sunday worship has become congregational evangelism, often called a seeker service. You've heard me say this before, but Romans chapter 3 and verse 12 says there is no one who seeks God, not even one. So how many people show up at your seeker service? That are truly seeking God according to, according to the Bible. It's God who seeks us, not the other way around. One, these are often called a seeker service and the way worship is done is designed to appeal to the person that you're trying to reach. There's only one major problem with designing worship for people who are not believers. And here it is. Unbelievers can't worship. Unbelievers can attend the worship of believers. And, in fact, are welcome to do so. And I hazard to say that every Lord's Day, we have unbelievers with us, undoubtedly today. And we're delighted that you're here. And I mean no disrespect, but our worship service is not designed for the tastes of people who can't engage in it. It's designed for those who have been regenerated, those who have been born again, to praise God and learn of God. To give back to God, to pray to their God. So unbelievers can't worship, and it seems to me great folly for our churches then to do and design their worship for those who can't engage in it. Worship, by definition, can only be engaged in by those who are saved, who have a relationship with God. And that's why we reserve our weekly outreach for a non-worship service, our second hour, discovering God. Believe it or not, God cares about how he's worshipped. Many of us think, you know, God, look, God's not doing well these days. Not as many people go to church as they used to. He'll probably just take what he can get. 
And whatever means you got to do in order to get people in, God's got to be pleased with that. Well, <clears throat> there were a couple of fellows in the first part of your Bible named Nadab and Abihu. They offered unauthorized fire before the Lord in worship. He killed them. In your New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12 says this. Let us worship God. Notice this next word, acceptably. What does that imply? It's possible to worship God how? Unacceptably. Let us worship God acceptably. And what does acceptable worship look like? Reverence and awe. Why? It's a warning. Our God is a consuming fire. God cares how he's worshipped. So I recommend that our churches put the smoke machines away. And let the rock bands play in the garage, if they play at all. And get back to what worship is designed to be and for whom it's designed. And let me publicly express my appreciation for all of those who labor each week to make our worship service something that allows us to focus our attention on the Lord without unnecessary distraction. There are lots of people engaged in that. Behind the scenes, some of them are sound and video guys. The only time you know they're back there is if something goes wrong, and it doesn't go wrong very often. Our ushers, right now our children's worship people are allowing your children, our children, to worship the Lord so that you can focus on the worship of the Lord without, without having to attend to your children. Our nurseries, of course, and then there's our music ministry. And those engaged in our music ministry do not seek to entertain, but rather to invite God's people to participate in musical worship. So thank you all. Healthy churches edify and they engage in worship. Another way they edify, build up is, in your outline, they engage in education. It says in verse 42 of Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And remember that in the Great Commission, Jesus said, that in making disciples, we are to teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Now, that word translated devoted in verse 42 was a common one that speaks of a steadfast, single-minded commitment to a certain course of action. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching refers to a body of material that was considered authoritative because it was the message about Jesus proclaimed by these accredited apostles. So it includes the gospel, the good news of the person and work of Jesus, but also the apostles' later teaching, now passed on to us in the completed New Testament. Our task is, Jesus said, to make disciples, and a disciple is a learner. And this is a way, this is why that we offer classes for you in order to be established in the faith. In addition to what you learn on Sunday, our midweek program offers core courses that everyone is to take, if at all possible. We've got a class called Foundations of the Christian Faith, How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible, Master Plan for Life, which is a systematic theology for regular people. Our next semester begins on the 18th of this month. We're going to have men's and women's classes in that second semester. First semester, the kinds of classes I just mentioned. And then our second semester is devoted to practical Christian living and applying what has been taught. Healthy churches build up. They edify. They engage in worship and education and, in your outline, in fellowship. They engage in fellowship. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. 
Literally, they devoted themselves to the, the fellowship. One commentator says this, that definite article in the fellowship implies that there was something distinctive in the gatherings of these early believers. With the influx of nearly of 3,000 on the day of Pentecost who came to Christ and with daily increases to their number after that, they must have had some externally recognizable identity. They were called the fellowship and they engaged in that. So it's like saying they were known as a group collectively. Kind of like speaking of the gathering or the group. And it says they were devoted to the fellowship. The collective of people that comprised the church in Jerusalem and its activities. Now being devoted then with a steadfast and and single-mindedness. A commitment to one another because of what we have in common means a number of things. It means more than just we're friendly. But rather, we're on mission together. Mission to grow in Christ-likeness and to see that message of Christ impact us and spread to affect others. The Bible is very clear on this need for fellowship with the group, with the fellowship, being in relationship with one another. It uses the phrase one another over three dozen times. But one danger for our church, I say to you, friends, at the beginning of this new year, is that we'll replace friendly for fellowship. That we'll replace friendly for biblical fellowship. We are known as a friendly church. I'm very glad about that. Who would want to pastor a non-friendly church? And one of the comments we regularly get from guests who come here is that people went out of their way to say hello to them, to welcome them, and thank you all for that very important ministry. But please note that we can be devoted to one another and still not be engaged in biblical fellowship. Football teams are devoted to one another. Gangs are devoted to one another. In biblical fellowship, we're devoted to one another because we're devoted to Christ and to his cause. And so that means in our relationships with each other, we don't just talk about the mundane. We do that. We enjoy that. But we also talk about the cause that has brought us together. And our ministry that he has called us to carry out. This word fellowship, Greek word koinonia, is used a number of times in your New Testament. We saw it in our survey of the book of Philippians. In chapter 1 it says, Paul says to the Philippians, I always pray with joy because of your, and there's the word fellowship, translated partnership. But it's your partnership in the gospel. And if in our relationships we are fellowshipping in the gospel, it means a bunch of things, including we'll be willing to say hard things to each other. You're not living for Jesus. You're sinning. You're harming the gospel in what you're doing. We will not, hear this, we will not mistake nice for godly. (laughs) You see, nice and friendly are not necessarily godly. Some of the most ungodly people I know and have known are some of the most publicly nice people you'll ever meet. When they see you, they will hug you and smile. And then have the capacity to turn around and devour you with their words to others. 
There's a scene in Anne of Avonlea. That's the sequel to Anne of Green Gables. Some of you know what that is? How do I know what Anne of Green Gables is? I am outnumbered in my home. I have three women in my home. We watch what they say to watch. I actually like Anne of Green Gables, though. And at one point, one of the characters is telling Anne about two prominent families in the town to which Anne has moved. And she says, we hate each other passionately. But then she quickly added, but we're very polite in public. So practically, how do we how do we play this out in the structure of our ministry, our community groups? That's our Sunday night home groups are a primary way for us to express our devotion to one another to get to know one another, to pray for one another, to have relationship in the common cause to which we are each committed. Now, let me just say to you, we need more homes for that. We have more people wanting to engage in our community groups than we have homes to meet in right now. We need people who are willing to open up their homes in 2017 for this very important ministry. So I'm encouraging you to pray about that, to consider that opening up your home, and if you can do that, let the folks at the Information Center know, and then we'll contact you about making that happen. One of the slogans for our church, we have a few, the family of God built on the word of God to the glory of God, that's our motto, but one of our slogans is real people, relevant teaching, and reverent worship. And that embodies all three of what I've said here, fellowship and education and worship. Healthy churches evangelize, they edify, and as a result, if they're doing both, the last thing on your outline, the last major point, is they expand. Healthy churches expand. They expand by growing two ways. The first is organizationally. Organizationally. The book of Acts and the Bible generally provides... The functions that we're to perform, but you've heard me say this before, but not the form in which they are to be carried out. That is, the Bible tells us what to do, but most often not how to do it. Here's an example. Hebrews chapter 10. Many of you are familiar with this passage. Let us not give up meeting together, but let us encourage one another. That passage tells us what we're to do. Meet regularly and encourage. But notice it doesn't tell us how to do it. And so we're not told when to meet or how often or where or what the order of service should be and so on. We're given illustrations of those in the New Testament, but it's impossible to derive a universal way of carrying that out based upon the passage. In fact, with regard to how you do things in the New Testament, here's what we find. That the functions, the things we're supposed to do are most often given without any way to do it specified at all. And then in the few cases where ways are given, they're often partial and incomplete. Here's an example. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 42, we just turn a couple of pages, Acts 5 and verse 42. Acts 5, 42, it says this. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So in that passage, we're told what they did. We're told that the apostles taught, and they did so. Here we are given a way they did it. They did it from house to house. But we're not told whether they taught in every house or just some of them, whether they taught both believers and unbelievers, whether they went inside or they stayed outside the house, whether neighbors were invited. None of that's told to us. And then we also find that sometimes the ways to do the same thing vary from one context to another. 
Again, in Acts 5.42, we're told that the apostles, in addition to teaching from house to house, they also taught in the temple courts. So that means we have to decide how best to do it. How best to carry out these objectives of evangelizing and building up in the faith. And that's why churches, and ours included, have added things that you don't find they're extra biblical but not unbiblical in order to carry these things out. Things like Sunday school, things like children's worship, things like nurseries. This is how, in fact, the office of deacon was created in the New Testament. In that first church in Jerusalem, there was no office of deacon, but a problem arose. And by the time you get to Acts chapter 6, the next chapter after the one we just read from Acts 5.42, it says a dispute arose. And in order to handle that dispute, the office of deacon was created. For us, practically, here's what that means. We expand organizationally, expanding things like our leadership team, the numbers of our pastors and our deacons. This summer... We're going to offer Leadership Institute again for the men who want to be trained to be qualified to be deacons on the leadership team in our church. Healthy churches expand organizationally and lastly and quickly. They not only grow organizationally, but they grow physically. If you have more people coming, you got to know what to do with them. And so it grows physically. Now, one way and one very good way, and by God's grace, one way we are going to handle that growth is by planting churches. That is, kicking some of you out of here. Now, I say that tongue-in-cheek, nobody gets kicked out. But it has been our objective for a good while that God would use us to train men who are capable to lead a plant as this church was a plant from another church. And we want to be used of God to do that same thing. But nevertheless, as God allows us to be effective in evangelism, in edification, as our church expands, yes, we will send people out to plant, but we'll also need to accommodate those people in our ministries, and that requires physical growth and a change to our physical plant here. In our 10-year plan that I talk about at the Servants Seminar that you will hear about next week if you weren't at the one in November, we talk about that as well as a number of other things. So here's your take-home truth. Healthy churches help people do these three things, and this should sound familiar to you because this is our mission statement. CBC exists to help people learn about God, love Him and others, and live for His purpose. I'm going to pray, and then we'll have our closing song. As we pray, and as we start this new year together, brothers and sisters, I encourage you to think about the mission that God has given us and your place within it. In the next few weeks, we have several opportunities for you to find your place if you don't have it right now. To use your gifts and abilities in order for us to collectively advance the objectives that God has given to his church. Next week, we start our newcomers orientation. If you're new here, be here for that. Next week, for those who are members, our members orientation that will remind you of these things and the number more. And then next Sunday night, our servant seminar. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for the blessing of having New Year's Day on the Lord's Day. Thank you for allowing us these moments to focus our attention on what you have called us to be and to do together as your people. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom that ordained the church. We thank you for the blessing 
that the ministry of the church in general has been to each of us because it's through that ministry of the body of Christ that all of us came to Christ. And you in your wisdom have seen fit to to require us to gather together, to, to band together, to use our collective resources in order to carry out your mission in your world. And you allow us to participate in that. Thank you not only for the body of Christ, universal, thank you for the local church, for churches like this where we can do that. Lord, thank you for your blessings to our church in years past. And we look forward now to what you're going to do this year and into the future in and through us as we commit and recommit together to carry out your work. And Lord, you will receive all the praise for what you accomplish. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.